Well, you guys can turn to Exodus chapter 4. We're going to continue in Exodus this morning. We actually have an absurd amount of material to cover. It's the, the 10 plagues that we're looking at today. It's quite a bit of the chunk of Exodus, everything from chapter 4 to chapter 15. Now, for those of us who grew up in church, this is probably not the first time that you've heard about the 10 plagues. If you're like me, probably the first time that you heard the story about the ten plagues, it was presented to you on flannel graph. So I I remember it distinctly, little pictures of the frogs and the cows and the flies put on a cute little board as as our Sunday school teachers walked us through the story of the ten plagues. Um, Churches typically try try to introduce kids to the ten plague story and cute and fun ways. I found these. Um, got on the left, amazed to celebrate all the livestock dying. I'm not sure the connection there, but okay. And then on the right, you get to color in a, a grasshopper to celebrate the locust plague. And I mean, he looks like he could be your best friend. What a cute little guy there. And here's, here's my favorite. Ten plagues of Egypt. Fun facts, printable, and craft. And they've turned each of the plagues into candy. And you get to, to enjoy them. How tasty is that? Well, Personally, I'm, I'm not really convinced that this is the best way to teach our kids the ten plagues. This might not be a great idea because if you read the account, you'll find that there is nothing cute or fun in this section of Scripture. Remember what motivated the ten plagues. Slavery and genocide that the Pharaoh inflicted upon the Israelites. And then you start to actually read this account and think about what was going on and imagine what it would have been like to have gnats and then flies and then locusts so thick they choke out the sun, they eat all your crops, they fill your house and every cupboard and every pot and they crawl inside your clothes and they fill your ears and your nose at all times. And then you think about the one where the cattle die. We're talking millions of cattle dead overnight. You couldn't bury them fast enough. If you think about a nation filled with stinking, bloated corpses of livestock, not only would it sink, but now all your meat, all your wool, all your milk, gone in an instant. Then you think about hail falling from the sky. So thick, we're told in the text, it shattered trees and it beat everyone black and blue. They would all look like this poor woman in New Zealand who got caught out in a hailstorm. And then we're told that every person and every beast covered in boils. And I'm not going to put a picture of that up because it would make me throw up. Just covered in painful sores from head to toe. And you think about death of the firstborn. When literally every firstborn animal and person in Egypt died on one night. And you imagine the wailing and the crying that would have filled that nation from border to border. You look at the plagues and you realize it's, it's utter terror, utter pain and suffering that are inflicted upon this people. So why are we going to study this brutal account this morning? Because in the midst of this brutal account, there are incredibly important lessons for us. I, I can't cover all the details. I couldn't even read the whole account in the time that we have. So what I want to do this morning I just want to share with you the four most important lessons that I took away from this account of this battle between God and Pharaoh. 
I want to share with you what I think are the four most crucial lessons for us to understand how God works in our world and in our lives that come out of this account of a battle between God and Pharaoh. So where did we leave Moses last week? Well, he was finally ready to fully obey God and go to Egypt and deliver the Israelites from their slavery. And and the first of these four lessons comes on that journey. So as Moses is leaving the desert and headed to Egypt, lesson number one, God demands our complete obedience. Look with me at chapter four of Exodus. Let's pick up the story in verse 24. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way, so they're on the way to Egypt, that the Lord met him, that is Moses, and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, Moses' wife, took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So God let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. What in the world is going on here? Why would God show up in the night to put to death the man he just called to go to Egypt and deliver his people? Because Moses had a problem in his life. Moses had chosen not to circumcise his son. Now, what is circumcision about? Well, it was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. This covenant promise that God gave to Abraham's family back in the book of Genesis. Circumcision was a sign. What is a sign? Well, often God gave to his people some physical or visible picture or sign of a covenant. So that every time they would see it, they would be reminded that God is faithful. So the first covenant sign we get in scripture is the rainbow. So that every time humanity sees the rainbow, they'd remember God's covenant to not flood the earth again. Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant promise. And in particular, it's a sign of the father's faith that his son will be blessed by this covenant. So Jewish dads were commanded to circumcise their sons as a sign of their faith in the covenant. Moses didn't. Why? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us what was going through Moses' mind, why he chose not to do this one. Uh, I, I assume he just thought it's not that big a deal, but it was. And so God shows up to put him to death. And notice, not to put his son to death, to put Moses to death. Because Moses is the one who failed here. And Zipporah, his wife, jumps up in the nick of time and saves his life. Okay, so what is the lesson there for us? Well, the lesson is that God demands the complete obedience of those he calls. When God calls us to do something in this world, he doesn't stand idly by if we excuse some area of sin in our lives. He's not going to do that. He's going to challenge that. Now, that doesn't mean perfection. If, if we had to be perfect to be able to serve God, no one would ever serve God. What we're talking about really is submission. God expects that those he calls will fully submit their lives to him. Every area of life fully submitted to him. That means that you're not trying to excuse sin or hide sin. You are open and accountable before God. Every area of your life you confess to him. You're seeking to obey him in every area. If there's some area of sin that you're excusing or hiding, that is going to become a really big issue. Between you and God. Because God will never excuse it. So if you've been paying attention to the news in the last couple years. You may have noticed that there have been some very influential pastors. 
who have been forced to resign because there was some area of sin they hid or excused in their lives. One of the most recent is Bill Hybels. That was really painful to me because I really looked up to that guy. I read almost every book he wrote. I attended his conferences. His church, Willow Creek, influenced so many churches throughout this country. He had a massive impact for so many of us. And yet he chose to excuse sexual sin in his life and it destroyed him. And now it's destroyed his ministry. And, and that is a common pattern. And you see it especially among people who God is using in big ways. Because it's so easy to make the excuse. Lord, look at all I'm doing. Lord, look at all the people I'm helping. All the positive impact on the world that I'm having. So really, this isn't that big a deal. I mean, really, this is pretty excusable. My little pet sin over here, who really cares about that? And yet, you leave a pet sin long enough. And it will destroy you. Because there is no pet sin. There's, there's no excusable amount of sin. Whatever sin you're not willing to deal with, it will own you and destroy you. Just like it destroyed Bill Hybels. Just like it destroyed so many great men and women of God before him. God demands our complete obedience in every area of life. Again, not perfection. None of us are going to be perfect. But what it means is that there's no area of sin we're making excuses for. There's no area of sin in our lives that we're hiding. We're instead confessing our sin openly to God and to one another and seeking to walk with God in every area of life. So very practically, if there is some sin that you have been either excusing in your life, you think it's no big deal, or you think, hey, everybody's doing it, or you think, look at all the good I'm doing, I deserve this, or there's some area of sin you've been hiding, you just don't want to face it, it's time to turn from that right now, today. The first step is you need to confess that to God. You need to say to God, even you can do this right now, just in your mind, say to God, God, you are right, I am wrong. That is not okay. That sin is not excusable. I, I confess that was wrong. Please, God, turn me from that sin. Help me to follow you. So you need to confess it to God now, and then this week you need to confess it to another believer. You need to have somebody in your life, a mature believer, ideally of the same gender, who you can confess that to, who can pray for you, and hold you accountable. And if it's some sin that, that you're like, okay, I know I need to turn from it, but I can't. Like it, it's a bad habit. It's an addiction. I don't know how to turn from it. Then come to us. Talk to a pastor. Talk to a counselor. Or come to Celebrate Recovery right up here on Tuesday night. We will help you to turn from that sin so that you can obey God in every area of your life. Until you're willing to do that, God won't use you. You have to be willing to submit every area to him. Because God will not excuse sin in our lives. That's the first lesson. Second lesson for us from this account is that obedience to God does not guarantee happiness. Look with me, starting in chapter 5. So Moses gets the whole sin thing taken care of. Now he's ready to fully obey. Let's pick up the story in chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh. Saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? 
Get back to your labors. Again, Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, you are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the quota of bricks which they were making previously you shall impose upon them. You are not to reduce any of it because they are lazy. Therefore they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men and let them work at it so that they will pay no attention to false words. Jump down to verse 19. The foremen of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble. Because they were told you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. When they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. They said to them, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. For you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. So just to explain what's going on here, Moses bravely obeys. Moses obeys God and and he goes mano a mano with the most powerful man on earth at the time. Pharaoh king of Egypt, the head honcho on earth at this time in history. Moses goes to him and bravely says, you have to release the Israelites. And surprise, surprise, it doesn't go well. Actually, it makes everything worse. Because Pharaoh doesn't care about Moses' God. He he doesn't know who this God is. He's not going to obey this God. And so Pharaoh makes the slavery harsher. The Israelites, they were were enslaved for the process of making bricks. That that was their job every day, make bricks. And, And Pharaoh's people would provide the straw and they would make bricks. And Pharaoh says, no, no, no. Now you're all busy talking about your God and worshiping him. I'm not going to give you straw anymore, but you have to make the same number of bricks or I'll kill you. And so now, slavery, which was harsh, becomes impossible. And so the Israelites cry out. They're angry at Moses. And then Moses cries out to God and says, it would have been better for you never to send me. He despairs before God. And the lesson for us is that obedience to God does not guarantee happiness in this life. What I'm trying to say here is that if you choose to obey God, God is not promising you ease or comfort or happiness. Now, I think most of us hopefully know that what is commonly called in this world the prosperity gospel is heresy. It's also called the health and wealth gospel. The idea is is you are taught that if you will obey God and have enough faith, God will reward you with lots of money and good health. Especially if you obey by sending money to the preacher, then you will get lots of money from God and really good health in this life. That's a very common teaching in the Christian church in America and throughout the world, especially on television, and it is a straight-up lie. That is completely false, utter lie. How do I know that? Because Paul gave everything to God, and he was stoned, imprisoned, beaten, and beheaded. Peter gave everything to God, and he was beaten, imprisoned, and crucified upside down. If those dudes aren't getting health and wealth, we're not getting health and wealth. The prosperity gospel is is heresy, an utter lie. I, I think most of us know that. What I'm concerned about is I think there's still a lot of us who fall prey to what I might call the prosperity gospel light. 
So the prosperity gospel light, it says, okay, okay, obedience does not guarantee physical health and wealth. But doesn't obedience guarantee spiritual health and wealth? If I obey, then won't I experience fullness of joy and peace and love in my life? If I obey God, won't I enjoy a great marriage and and great kids and a great community? Well, I used to think that. I used to assume when I was younger that if I obey God, yes, I'm going to have sacrifices. I'm going to have to sacrifice the respect I could have in the eyes of the world. I have to sacrifice some money, some pleasure. But I will have all this happiness. I'll have all this joy in my soul. I'll have peace all the time. I'll have an easy marriage. I'll have great relationship with my kids. I'll have all of this spiritual health and wealth. No, that's not how Moses feels in this account. He's not happy. He doesn't feel joy. He doesn't feel peace. He feels grief. That is common throughout scripture. That when we obey God, we experience grief and despair. Look at Elijah, the great prophet. Fully obeyed God on Mount Carmel. Went mano a mano with the prophets of Baal. Huge victory. And then what does he get for his troubles? Queen Jezebel's coming after him. He has to run off into the desert completely alone. He gets so depressed, he asks God to put him to death. Or take the great missionary, Adoniram Judson. First missionary to leave the the United States and go into missions. He went to Burma. Amazingly faithful missionary. He suffered imprisonment for Jesus, persecution for Jesus, illness for Jesus. So faithful for so many years. And then his wife died. And he walks out into the Burmese jungle, digs a grave, and lays down in it for days, waiting for death. That, that is depression, if you want to know what depression looks like. You dig an open grave and go lay in it. What I'm trying to say is that God does not promise us that if we obey him in this life, we're going to feel happy or see ministry success. No. Many of the greatest men and women of scripture who obey God fully did not live long enough to see success in their ministry. Just look up Jeremiah. Many of the great men and women in scripture fully obey God and experience incredible grief and despair. I shared a picture on Facebook earlier this week that was very meaningful to me. It's kind of kind of funny but extremely meaningful. It's a pillow that says it's okay to have Jesus and a therapist too. I like that pillow because that's true. I shared that because I fear that there's a lot of Christians who who believe that if I just obey God enough and trust in God enough, then I will never have to deal with anxiety or depression or despair or doubt. Nope. No, I, I need a therapist and I'm following Jesus. I need antidepressants to make it through the day and I'm following Jesus. Because that's how life works. We were not promised mental health as a result of obedience. No. What did God promise us if we follow Jesus? We will suffer. I'm sorry to be such a downer this morning. But it is worth it to me if there's even one person here who felt guilty because they're a Christian who needed a therapist or needed antidepressants or anti-anxiety medicines I want you to know you're not alone. There's a lot of us, and that's not a sign that you're not a good Christian. It's just a reality because God never promised us that obedience would bring happiness. 
So that's the second lesson that we get from this encounter between Moses and Pharaoh. All right, third lesson that comes out of this account. Your idols will fail you. It's time to get into the actual plagues themselves. They start in chapter 7. So if you want to turn to chapter 7, God begins to unleash plagues upon Egypt. The goal of these plagues is to motivate Pharaoh to release the Israelites from their slavery. Let's look at the first plague. It starts chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water and station yourself to meet him on the banks of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. You shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened until now. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. The fish that are in the Nile will die, and the Nile will become foul, and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. So plague number one, the Nile turns to blood. After that, you've got the frogs, then the gnats and the flies, death of the livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and death of all firstborn. Now, the question that comes to my mind when I read through those plagues is is simple. Why are there so many? And that is an incredible amount of suffering. Ten plagues. And the the last of them is worse, an incredible amount of death. So why are there so many plagues unleashed upon Egypt? Well, we're told it's because Pharaoh's heart was hard, which means even though he could see Yahweh's power, God's power, he was not interested in obeying God. The, the challenge, though, is that when you read the text carefully, you'll find that more often than not, it is God who hardens Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes Pharaoh hardens his own heart, but usually it's God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Why? I don't know. That, that's really tough for me. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know why God would do that. If you want to know more about that, go ask Brian. Maybe he can tell you what to do with that. I don't know why God did that. I do know that God brought great good out of this whole encounter with Pharaoh. So why are there so many plagues? Well, ultimately the answer is because Egypt had so many gods. Egypt was, as a culture, what we call polytheistic. They believed in and worshipped a lot of different gods, all of whom were limited. None of these Egyptian gods were sovereign or all-powerful. There were lots of different gods, and each god controlled some realm of your life. Okay, so there were gods for wealth and for fertility and, and gods for crops and health and sexuality and all these different gods. And, and whatever it was you wanted, you went and worshipped that god that controlled that thing. That was how their religion worked. And so the key to understanding the ten plagues is to realize that each of the plagues dethrones one or more of the Egyptian gods. So I'll just, I can't go through them all. don't have time. I'll just give you a couple examples. So the, the plague with the frogs, what's that about? Well, this lady, Heket, she was the goddess of fertility that the Egyptians worshipped. She had the face of a frog. That's actually what she looked like. And yet, as powerful as she might be, she could not stop the country being overrun with frogs. Or how about the, the plague of darkness, number nine? Well, that's about this guy, Ra. 
the Egyptian sun god. He literally carried the sun on his head, and yet he was not powerful enough to stop the darkness when Yahweh brought it. Each and every one of the plagues is designed to dethrone one or more Egyptian gods so that both the Israelites and the Egyptians would know that all the Egyptian gods are false. And so look with me at chapter 12. Turn to chapter 12 in Exodus. Chapter 12, verse 12. Look there. You get a sense of what's going on in in these plagues, in this account. Chapter 12, verse 12. This is God speaking. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night. This is the night when all the firstborn are put to death. And I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So notice the plagues aren't just judgment on the Egyptians. They're judgment on their gods. The plagues are meant to show that their gods are false. And, and that, that works. Look at what Jethro, you'll meet him later, says in Exodus 18. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. The purpose of the plagues is to show that our God is greater, that there is no other God, no God who can resist him, no God who can stand above him. So the plagues are dethroning the idols of Egypt, but what, what exactly does that have to do with us? We, we don't worship their gods. We don't worship little statues or little pictures. We don't worship trees or streams or the sun. Well, we need to define idolatry accurately because it's really not about that. It's about something much bigger. So if you study the Bible and ask, what is idolatry according to to the Bible. Here's the best definition I have yet found. Idolatry means simply giving anything that is not God the trust and devotion that belong to God alone. So you make an idol whenever you seek from something that's not God what only God can provide. Okay, so here's another way to look at it. Thomas C. Oden, I think he put it really well. One has an idol When a finite value, something that is not God, is worshipped and adored and viewed as that without which one cannot receive life joyfully. And in other words, if there's something in your life that's not God, that you look at that thing and say, I must have that, or I cannot have a fulfilled life, that is by definition an idol. So it may be something you already have. And, and, and you believe that you must hold on to that. You must keep that. You must protect that. Or you will not live a life worth living. Your life won't be secure. It won't be meaningful. Well, that's an idol. Or it could be something that you don't have yet. But you believe if you could only get that, then life would be worth living. Then you would be valuable. Then you would be significant. Then you would have a, a, a life of satisfaction. That is, by definition, an idol. So... Idolatry is extremely common in our world. By this definition, America has a lot of idols. Let me walk you through just a few of our idols. Number one on the list, well, money and possessions. Notice there's nothing wrong with money and possessions. They are not evil in and of themselves. But if we believe that life isn't worth living without them, then they're an idol. If we believe that our security is found in them, then they're an idol. If we believe our value is found in how much of these we have, then it is an idol. Another one, romantic love. Who doesn't like romantic love? It's a wonderful thing. 
until it becomes an idol. And it becomes an idol when you believe that that guy or that girl, if you just had a relationship with them, if you just married them, if you just lived with them, then finally your life would be worth living. Finally, you would be loved, you would be valued, you would have satisfaction. It is an idol at that point. Or how about beauty? We, we live in a culture where beauty is often worshipped. And you can see signs of it when people spend way too much on, on outward adornment, on clothes, on makeup, or in the gym, or, or they hurt their bodies trying to, trying to accomplish some particular shape. Now, there's nothing wrong with beauty. God gave beauty. God loves beauty. But, but when beauty becomes our obsession, when it becomes what we're living for, then it is an idol. How about fame? If my goal in life is to be famous, for lots of people to know me, if I make that my goal, then it has become an idol. Here's one that is really common in this particular town, education or intelligence. A lot of people in this town who believe their significance as a human is found in their IQ or the letters after their name. In that case, then it's an idol. If you believe your value as a human being is in your education or intelligence, you've made that thing an idol that you worship. Or how about career? There are countless Americans who have sacrificed family and health to this idol. Or how about ministry? This one surprises people a lot. Ministry, you're doing stuff for God. How could that be bad? Well, it's not inherently bad. But when you begin to believe that your ministry is what makes you valuable to God, is what makes you significant in the world, you've turned it into an idol. One of the most important things I have to do on a regular basis is remind myself God needs nothing from me. Southwood would not suffer an iota if I died today. Why? Because this isn't about me. I have nothing to offer God here. Right? My ministry isn't what God needs. My ministry isn't what makes me valuable to God. Otherwise, I've turned it into an idol. Now that I've stepped on enough toes, let me give you one more. <laughs> Family. There's perhaps no greater idol in American evangelical Christianity than this one. Family. The idea of having a spouse and having kids. This nuclear family. You want to do everything for your family. You want to give your kids the best situation possible. But it so easily turns into idolatry when the meaning of your life is found in your kids. Then your kids are an idol for you. When church is about meeting the needs of your family, then they're an idol to you. When the most important thing in the world to you is your kids and their success, you've let them become an idol. Idolatry is incredibly common in this world. I I love, when you look at this list, you you may be surprised. There's nothing inherently bad on that list. (laughs) All those things are good. And and, and that's kind of the point. This was really eye-opening when I read this. Tim Keller wrote it a number of years ago and it really helped me understand idolatry. He says, the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment. We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. Paul talked about this in Romans 1. He said, they exchange, it's humanity, the truth of God for a lie. 
and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That is the lie. That is the first and fundamental lie of the human race. We worship the creation rather than the creator, thinking that something in creation or someone in creation can satisfy us better than him. We are all so prone to idolatry. As Keller said, the human heart is an idol factory. Like your heart is making idols for you all the time. And so as you think about the ten plagues, what you need to understand, the ten plagues are about idolatry. They're about showing us that the gods of this world will never satisfy. They will fail us. The ten plagues are not just about Egypt. They're about us and the folly of our idols. So how do you know if you had an idol? Well, if anything on the list I shared earlier made you feel a little uncomfortable, probably an idol. All of us have idols. First step is to acknowledge it to God. Confess that to God and ask him to break you of that idol and worship him alone. Okay, so third lesson for us in this account is that our idols will fail us. Fourth lesson in this account, God's judgment is often motivated by mercy. The first time that you read this account, it kind of seems like God hates the Egyptians. The Israelites are the good guys. The Egyptians are the bad guys. God just wants to destroy them. If that was the case, though, if, if, if the Egyptians were all bad guys and God hated them and wanted to destroy them, you realize God had a much easier way around this, right? Snap his fingers. They're done. Could have wiped them all out in an instant. The Israelites could have picked up their stuff and walked out of there. So why doesn't God? Why doesn't he just wipe them out? Well, because God's desire was to save the Egyptians. God's desire was to show mercy to the Egyptians, just as he shows mercy to the Israelites. How do I know that? Well, one of the most important verses in the Bible to me, 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then I urge that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanks be offered on behalf of all people, even for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Such prayer for all is good and welcome before God our Savior, since... He wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That is what God wants for every human being who's ever lived. So what did God want for the Egyptians? Not death, not destruction, salvation. He wanted them to know that he is a God who saves. That's clear in the account. If you go back to Exodus chapter 5, jump back to Exodus chapter 5. You read this verse just a little while ago. Pharaoh asks a question. It is the most important question in this part of Exodus. It drives what God does. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that is Yahweh, Israel's God, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. I do not know Yahweh. And besides, I will not let Israel go. So Pharaoh has asked, Who is this God you speak of? Who is Yahweh that I should pay any attention to him? I don't know him. Why should I listen to him? And so God acts so that Pharaoh and the Egyptians will come to know him. So flip back to chapter 7. So just to the right, just a little bit. Look at chapter 7, verse 3. Chapter 7, verse 3. God says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. 
That's God's intention. He wants in mercy for the Egyptians to come to know that he is God and their gods are nothing. And as best we can tell, it works to a large extent. Keep going to the right to chapter 12 again. So go back to chapter 12. Look at verse 38. Chapter 12, verse 38. This is the Exodus. So the Israelites are leaving and look who comes with them. A mixed multitude also went up with them along with the flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. Now, we don't know the details here, but it it seems clear that there are a lot of Egyptians mixed in with other ethnic groups that leave Egypt with Israel. Why? Because they have come to believe that this is God. This is the one true God. So when we think about what God is doing among the Egyptians, we have to understand God isn't wanting to save Israel and destroy Egypt. He wants to save both. He wants to save Israel from slavery and Egypt from idolatry. That's always what God wants. Look at Ezekiel 33. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but prefer that the wicked change his behavior and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil deeds. Why should you die, O house of Israel? That's always what God wants. He always wants repentance and salvation. That is his goal. And working with the human race. God is so much merciful, so much more merciful than we are. We want justice for the bad people, deliverance for the good people. But in this account, who's the bad people? Everyone. The Israelites are bad too. You're going to see more of that in the coming weeks. So what was needed was salvation for all the bad people. The Israelites and the Egyptians both. God wanted mercy for all. And so... What do we do with that? Well, hopefully that will open our eyes. And we've been talking about this quite a bit this semester to our job on this earth. What is your job on this earth? To share the mercy of God found in Jesus Christ with everyone who will listen. That's why you're here. That's the whole point. You have an incredibly merciful God and he has placed you right here so that you would share that mercy with people who don't yet know him. So let me remind you of what we've been talking about so far this semester. This semester, our big emphasis, our big goal is to share the love of Jesus with all of our neighbors. Our, our, our motto here at Grace Bible Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. That's what we want. We want it for every neighbor, every person who lives by us, who works with us, learns with us. We want all of them to come to know Jesus. So to that end, I gave you a little handout two weeks ago. It looked like this. If you remember, if you got that, then I want you to think back to it. Hopefully you still have it in a convenient place. If you were not here two weeks ago, I want you to go get one of these on your way out in the portico. That's the place, you know, covered place where you're walking out. There's a table there. It's got lots of these every neighbor maps. Grab one if you don't have one. The whole point of this map is that you are writing the names of people in your life who don't yet know Jesus. People who are, who are where you live, that's your neighborhood, your apartment complex, your dorm. People where you learn, that's your classmates. Where you work, those are people you work with. Where you play, that's what hobbies, gym, where your kids play sports, wherever it might be. And, and as I said two weeks ago, if you don't know their names, that's okay. Just write down some kind of identifier like the lady with the red door. Whatever it is, 
write it all down here so that, so that you begin to pray for these people. That's the point of this map. You're going to begin to pray that God would open their eyes to Jesus. And, and in particular, I want you to pray that God will use you to share Jesus with one of these people this semester. That's our goal. For every one of us, we're going to share Jesus with one person on our map this semester. Now to that end, we have tried to create some events for you uh, this fall to help give you really easy ways to share Jesus with the people on your list. So if you're on the end of an aisle, look down under your seat. If you're on the end of an aisle, you will see uh, at one side of the aisle, there's a stack of cards. They look like this. They're postcard size, orange on one side, says every neighbor with our key verse for the semester, 1 Peter 2, 9 right there. And on the back, it has dates. Um, so what we've tried to give you is a list of opportunities coming up in, in our town this semester where, where you can have a, an easy opportunity to, to share Jesus with someone on your list. There's quite a few here. I can't cover all these this morning. I actually just want to focus on the second one. October 1st, did you know that is National Night Out? Now, actually it's not. It was back in August, but it is so stinking hot in August in this town that the city of College Station very wisely moved National Night Out in College Station to October 1st. So, October 1st in our town is National Night Out. Please mark that. That is such an easy night to get to meet your neighbors and share Jesus with them because they're wanting to meet you too. So we want you to take advantage of that opportunity. For some of you, you live in an apartment complex or a neighborhood where there will already be a party on National Night Out. Like your homeowners association puts it on, fire truck's going to come out for all the kids. All we're asking you to do is attend. Be there and meet people. Maybe volunteer to help them, like bring food, bring desserts. For some of you, you live in a dorm or apartment or a neighborhood where there isn't an HOA planning a national night out yet, maybe you could help pull that off so that your neighbors can meet one another and you can meet them. And, and I've actually invited uh, a couple ladies from our church to come up and talk to you guys about that. Sarah, if you'll come up, Sarah Moffat and Elizabeth Strickland, if you'll come on up. So they had an opportunity this last summer to do kind of one of these National Night Out things, but on July 4th. So they kind of celebrated that together. And uh, we thought it'd be a great opportunity for them to share with you a little bit about how they pulled that off and how they used that event to meet their neighbors and begin to have an impact on their lives. So um, ladies, let me ask you, uh, first of all, if you'll just give us a sense, what exactly did you guys do to, to make this event on July 4th happen? Our event actually started about nine years ago on National Night Out, but as our kids have gotten older, we moved it to the 4th of July because we just thought people are in the celebratory mood, they want to hang out, and um, so we just basically had our kids pass around invitations, and um, we pulled our grills out in the cul-de-sac and put some hot dogs on there, got some bags of chips, and pulled up lawn chairs, and... um, it's been cool to see it evolve over the last several years, and now, to our delight, people are actually inviting their friends or neighbors that don't have anywhere else to go. Well, and to that end, as you can see, we did it together, which kind of helps. It's not Hospitality would not be my strength, and so I would encourage you, if you kind of are feeling like you don't know what to do, invite a friend over. It may not be a neighbor, but it might be a friend that you have in your life that's over at your house or your apartment a lot. Bring them into the fold and have them help you orchestrate an event, and it makes it easier. 
What kinds of conversations did this event allow you to have with your neighbors? I think, I think we didn't have a great agenda, to be honest with you. The only thing we talked about is always wanting to pray before the meal and speak Jesus' name in the prayer. And then it's really been surface conversation um, throughout the parties, but with the chance to meet um, people on a deeper level. And just really with our intention to make his name known and to, as followers of Christ, that's our calling. And so through these questionings, we wanted to get to know them. We asked specific questions. Our husbands asked specific questions. Make connections with your neighbors. And then we proceeded to follow up so that we could then get to know them on a deeper level. And talk a little bit about that follow-up. What has happened since the party? Uh, What are some examples of conversations that have come out that maybe are a little deeper since the party and and you got to know people in the neighborhood? I think we both decided as well that we had the opportunities because we had young kids to choose to go out front instead of go in our backyard and use our kids as the vehicles for the Lord to create conversations. So as many times as possible, we would go out front um, and just remember those key things about the people so that we could follow up and ask, how are your mom, how's your mom doing or um, how's work going? I, I know Steve and I have had the opportunity to um, just have some conversations with, they're struggling, they're, they're um, suffering anxiety or just unbelief. And um, they've actually watched our lives and watched me get frustrated with my kids or have a bad day. And how do you do that day after day? They ask me this, and I'm able then to tell them it's because of Jesus. And I've been able to pray for a neighbor who had a great injury, and showed, she, had, she showed up on my door, and I prayed over her. Um, just being willing to slow down and slow down my schedule and um, being prayerful about just specifically every day, Lord, help me to be open to these conversations and help me to see people coming and going so that I can go and talk to them. Um, Really, yeah. What I think what you said was key is just being open to what the Lord is having you use, using your life, whatever phase you're in, whatever stage you're in, whatever you're going through, he can use that to glorify his name. And so for us, it's been with my family walking through a tragedy one time. It was when you're living next door to people, you can't hide the messiness of life. No matter whether you want to go inside and close the doors, you can't. And so it was them watching us walk through this, seeing grief, but then in the middle of grief, just hope and asking us, how do you have hope? How can you have an outlook on that in this situation? And then it opens the door to sharing the gospel with them that they might have heard before, but heard it in a different way that time and planting those seeds and then just the follow-up questions, follow-up conversations. And then with my husband and I, a sweetest friendship that has evolved with some close next door neighbors who just through conversations, they're going through their whole life has been hard for them and just praying with them, asking them what we can pray for being intentional and just showing them and sharing them the gospel. Just, it's not about who they are and what they've done. It's about who he is and what he's done. And It was a different way that they'd never heard that before, and there wasn't a great conversion moment, but my husband meets with him every month. They go out for barbecue. He asks questions. She searches. She asks me questions, and it's just being faithful in those conversations and directing it back to him and just letting our life be a model of what we're telling him, let our actions back up our words and just having his name known at every turn that we can, and they're still seeking. We're still 
trying, and it's their names that we write down on this. It was the first name my kids wrote down. We pray for them with hopeful hearts. Thank you, ladies, so much for sharing your stories. And um, Part of the reason that uh, I asked Sarah and Elizabeth to come talk to you guys is neither of them are pastors. They're, they're not professionals in, in ministry, and yet they're having an amazing impact right where God has placed them. That's what God has called us all to. And so I hope you'll follow their examples. If, if everybody at Southwood would, would do what these two families have done, we would have an unbelievable impact on this community. So let's pray and ask our merciful Father to help us. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are so merciful. We praise you and thank you that your desire is to save everyone, to draw everyone to know Jesus. We pray that even in hard situations, even in in these judgments of the plagues, you were seeking for the Egyptians to know you and come to love you. We we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would learn from that and that we would be a, a voice of your mercy to this world. I pray that you would convict us when we get judgmental towards this world, when we get judgmental about all those bad people. I pray that you would help us to remember that we are no better than them, that all of us desperately need your mercy. We pray, Lord, that like you, that we would be loving to the people of this world, that we would reach out to them with the good news of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, for this example that we've heard from Sarah and Elizabeth of of just using some grills and some hot dogs to, to build a relationship with neighbors. And I pray, Lord, that every one of us here would do that. I pray that we would get to know the people where we work, where we live, where we study, where we play. I pray that we would get to know them and that we would open our lives to them so that they can see how we live, how we suffer, how we love, how we work through things. And we pray that through that, they would be drawn to you, Jesus. We pray that they would come to know and trust you. Thank you, God, that you are so good to us. We pray that you would walk with us and help us to walk with you this week. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.